Hello, and welcome to episode 3 of Screaming Through the Ages. I'm back for the third part in my Val Luton series, and we've got a pretty jam-packed episode today. I'm trying some new things out with the format of the show, and maybe experimenting with making it a little longer, so we're covering three films here. Hopefully we don't go on for too long. I'm going to continue to keep experimenting to try to refine the show and make it better for everyone, so any feedback would definitely be appreciated. Keep in mind, the movies we are going to cover today will all be spoiled, so if you want to check them out before listening, please pause the podcast, go and watch them, they're very short watches, and come back. Today we'll be covering the next chapter in Val Luton's career. Where we last left off, we were talking about I Walked with a Zombie and the Leopard Man and the challenges that Val was facing at that time. Today we'll be pivoting towards his next three films and what else was going on at RKO at the time. So I'll be covering The Seventh Victim, The Ghost Ship, and The Curse of the Cat People. If you will, please turn your books to chapter 1, page 3, and we'll dive into your bi-weekly horror movie history lesson. I came in initially dreading this episode since the first time I saw The Seventh Victim and The Curse of the Cat People, they didn't exactly hit with me, and I kind of always stayed away from the ghost ship because of the general tone that I was getting off of the film. This was not initially something I was excited for, but after revisiting The Seventh Victim and Curse the Cat People, I really turned around on them, and we'll talk about that as we get through these films and my feelings on them and how it changed upon rewatch. Where we last left off was after The Leopard Man, and a bit of turmoil was caused in RKO's B-movie horror team camp. After the Leopard Man, they split up Val Luton and Jacques Turner, putting them on separate projects for the foreseeable future. After the resounding success they had with Cat People, they wanted to split the two up and see if they could double their profits, essentially, having films make as much money coming from Val Luton's camp and Jacques Turner's camp, and helping the studio as a whole. If you Look back, RKO was struggling mightily before Cat People came out, and that was really a hit that helped it turn things around. I don't necessarily blame them for trying to split up the team. They did at least give them three movies to work together and to put out. It's kind of sad to see these two collaborators who made these wonderful movies be split up. Luton needed a new director to direct his films going forward, so he looked from within and promoted Mark Robeson, who was an editor on the team and had helped with story and things like that on the other movies. Not a bad idea. There are those two schools of thoughts. You know, either you co and grab someone from outside the circle or you promote from within hope that as little changes as possible. The studio actually came back to Val Luton and asked if he would rather have a bigger budget if he used a different director than Robeson. But Luton decided to stick with B-movies and Robeson... I think he wanted to keep the little freedom that he had and to try to keep prying hands out of that bigger budget. You know, the bigger the budget, the more eyes that are on you and the more hands that, the more cooks that are getting into the kitchen. So that's it for our little setup on this episode. Let's get right into the films since, like I said, we have a jam-packed episode to get to. We're starting off with 1943's The Seventh Victim. And once again, these releases here were part of that boom, boom, boom kind of string that Val Luton was on where his team was putting out these movies every few months. Let's set up the background on The Seventh Victim a little bit. Charles O'Neill originally wrote this film as a murder mystery set in California, and it was about a woman being stalked by a serial killer. Uh, One version of the script, I'm not sure if it was Charles O'Neill's version, but it focused on an orphan being targeted in a murder plot. And in this version, there was a heroine and... She would have to discover the orphan's identity, saving the orphan from becoming the seventh victim of this serial killer. Now, this makes a whole lot more sense when you're going with the title than what we end up getting. I don't know which version of this film I would have liked best, but the way the seventh victim is used in the final film, the final product, I think it would have made a lot more sense for the title to go with this movie that was written. Unless you're paying attention, really and listening to the details, you might miss why this film's called The Seventh Victim. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense until you get much later on in the movie. You can kind of see this bare-bones structure that was written by Charles O'Neill, but DeWitt Bodine went in and 
extensively rewrote the script and changed everything of what it was going to be about. Val Luton also, as normal, contributed a lot to the script. So Bodine went in and based this new story on a satanic society meeting he attended in New York City. Which is a weird concept, you know. I'm just going to run out and go to this satanic society meeting real quick. I don't know if Bodine was part of the satanic society or if he was doing it strictly for research purposes. He thought it would be a cool thing to go check out. I'm not sure. But it's just kind of this weird thing that he went to this meeting. But that goes to the background of they are basing these films on things they know about, things they've researched about, things that have happened in their life. And I think that's really where you get the best material is when you're basing it on something in reality, some part of your experience or really digging in and making sure you fully understand the subject matter. Now, there's a bit of a controversy surrounding what ended up happening with this film. Director Robeson and the editor on the film, who was John Lockhart, ended up cutting four substantial scenes from the film, including a longer ending. According to Val E. Luton, who is Val Luton's son, these resulted in the film feeling a bit disjointed as far as the narrative is concerned, and I can see that. I can see the point of view there. Val E. Luton said that the film would have felt more complete without the cuts, with the exception of the ending, which he felt was kind of a rehash and was wisely cut. From his perspective, these scenes added a lot more context to the narrative. Now, the funny thing about that is Val E. Luton was six years old at the time, so you have to think that this is coming from something he heard from his father. I'm sure he was on the sets of these films, and I'm sure he probably saw this material or knew about this material, talked to his dad about this material, but I'm guessing at six years old, you're not going to form an opinion on what is going to make a movie good or not. Maybe he had those thoughts later in life when he knew what was cut, but I'm betting there's a little bit of his dad saying, I don't know why they cut this. I don't know where Final Cut came down in these RKO collaborations, but it seems like Robeson, based on his son's commentary at least, it seems like Robeson and Lockhart cut these scenes without Val Luton's approval. Among these cuts were scenes that fleshed out one of the characters where Dr. Judd, and we'll get into Dr. Judd later, don't you worry, but Dr. Judd goes on and pretends he wants to join this paladist satanic cult and he accidentally lets slip in one of those conversations where Jacqueline was hiding I think myself these would have added a lot more context and aspect because we don't have any kind of confirmation of how the satanist found Jacqueline in the first place when she's hiding and it really makes sense for Dr. Judd's motives because you can't really tell whether he's part of this cult or not at points in this film I think this would have really fleshed things out and we'll get into all that later if you're confused about the plot of this at all the film initially released on September 17th, 1943, again at the Rialto Theater in New York City. It didn't make much upon its initial release and wasn't received very well by audiences or critics. Due to this and the giant mess that happened with the ghost ship after this, Luton unfortunately had to scrap plans for two different projects he wanted to work on. One was called The Screaming Skull and one was called The Amorous Ghost. Now, I don't know about you, but The Screaming Skull sounds pretty cool. I would have loved to see Val Luton produce a film called The Screaming Skull. That would have been awesome. The Amorous Ghost, not so much, especially, we'll learn a little later, that was supposed to be this comedy film, so not too bummed about that, but man, Screaming Skull, R.I.P. That's our setup for this film, and surprisingly, there was much more about these films than I thought there were going to be going in. I mean, we didn't get a whole lot on The Leopard Man. We did get a little bit when I walked to the zombie but I was surprised at the details we got with these, and I was very pleasantly surprised. Funnily enough, Curse the Cat People, which is a sequel to Cat People, had the least about it when I was researching. So let's go ahead and get into a summary. Over on Letterboxd, it reads, A young woman searches for her missing sister, who, unknown to her, has become involved with a group of Satan worshippers in Grenwick Village. That's pretty accurate. It gets a little bit into... I guess spoilers of it, because we don't learn about that satanic element until probably over halfway through the film. The beginning of this film plays out a lot like a noir mystery type thing. It's even more of a noir film. I know we talked a little bit about The Leopard Man, but it's even more noir than that, which Leopard Man is pretty much noir light. This is, this is pretty heavily bathed in noir stuff. 
the horror does start to seep in here and there. I would say more than horror, this is a mystery noir film with some horror thrown in. Probably the reason, it was probably the reason why the Satanist thing was added in there to add a little bit of horror to it. But really, are any of Val Luton's films straight up horror? I feel like he doesn't go for the straight up horror. A lot of times he's doing it much more subtly, and we'll talk about that a little later as we go through the episode. Setting this up, we start off with this girl Mary who's at a boarding school, and she hasn't heard from her sister, so she's going to New York to find her and see what's going on. And that's really what kicks this whole thing off, is Mary going to New York to find her sister that she hasn't heard from. That's the whole driving force of this entire story as we do follow Mary. She's going into New York and she's checking around and she's trying to get some clues here and there. So she finds out that her sister sold her business, which is weird, and they haven't heard from her apparently, allegedly, in eight months. Mary is eventually led to this restaurant where her sister rents a room from. She had rented this room from the restaurant owners and changed the locks and hasn't been back to that room since. She's been back to the restaurant to eat, but hasn't been back to the room. And she begs the owner to open the door. Finally, they decide they will open the door. And they get in there, and all they see in the room is a noose hanging from the ceiling with a chair under it. Now, getting some background, her sister Jacqueline has always been obsessed with death and has always talked about taking her own life and ending her own life on her own terms. And we get this background of that. And when we open this door and see this, it's just really powerful. I love this scene in the film. It's a great scene early on. It's really powerful. It has a lot of weight to it. As you just open the door, you get this musical cue, and you see a noose in a chair, and she's already missing her sister and doesn't know where she is. It's a great setup to this noir plot, and it's a great mystery. Now, as we go on a little bit into the film, we lose that element as we learn about other things. And the film really does pivot and become something else. I think that's where we have the difference with the structure that we get early on versus the structure we get later. I think that has a lot to do with the script rewrite and all the different versions that this thing went through. Pretty much everything we've talked about so far has been very noir-related, very much they're on this journey to find Jacqueline, find out what happened to her. And we have several players as we go along. So where does the horror come in on this movie? We get a few pretty tense moments in this movie. I would say the first one stems when, and this plays more into that mystery as well, when Mary is at the police station trying to file a missing persons report for her sister. She runs into a private investigator named Mr. August, who offers to help, but she can't afford him. Well, after Mary leaves, we get this scene where Mr. August is approached by someone saying, hey, do you know who her sister is? And he said no, and the man proceeds to tell him and says, then you know to stay out of it. Well, this intrigues Mr. August, and he takes on the case pro bono. When we get to the horror here is where Mr. August and Mary sneak into this factory, and they're trying to find clues about Jacqueline. Mr. August breaks into this office, or he's attempting to break into this office, and he tells Mary to wait for him. And we see Mary here, and it's very tense because there's some night watchmen patrolling the grounds. And when... Mr. August comes back, he kind of stumbles out, and he's speechless, and then he falls down to the ground dead. And Mary hightails it out of there. Well, that's not the end of the scene, either. That's not the end of this tense moment. Mary gets on the subway car, just trying to get home and get out of here. She sees two men walk in with Mr. August in between them, propping him up. And they walk onto the subway car and put him there and prop him up like they intend to leave him. Well, the men get a glimpse of Mary and see that she knows what's going on, so Mary leaves the car, there's this tense moment where they're looking at each other, and Mary runs and leaves the car and goes and gets the, I guess, the attendant on duty here on the subway car, and he comes back and checks, and they're gone. That's a pretty good scene early on. That's our first glimpse into horror, or at least a thriller-type moment. We find out later that it was actually Jacqueline who stabbed Mr. August. She was locked up in that room and saw that as her chance to escape, so she stabbed Mr. August and ran out of there. And we get later on, we get this constant term that's used over and over, which I don't think has been, I don't think it's popular. I don't think it's in the popular vernacular. Everyone just keeps referring to her as a murderess, a murderess. And yeah, I guess she is, but just really a murderer. I don't know. 
just a weird word that I thought was funny coming up in this. To talk about some of the other thriller-type moments that go on, let's go into a surprise for me, and I spoke about this earlier. We have the return appearance of Dr. Lewis Judd, ladies and gentlemen. Dr. Lewis Judd from Cat People. If you remember back, he's the psychiatrist in Cat People who's talking to Arena and trying to get her over her fear, and she ultimately kills him in that movie. So this film is set back in New York City, and our main characters run into Dr. Judd. We have a run-in with Dr. Judd. He first comes in and talks to Jacqueline's husband, Gregory, who's a lawyer. And then he goes and sees Mary herself because Jacqueline had sent him to go get Mary. And this might be the very first shared universe film here. I don't think we've seen the Abbott and Costello movies up to this point or anything like that with the Universal Monsters. And I don't think we've seen any crossover either. I might be mistaken on my dates, but I think this might be the very first shared universe type of thing where we have the same character appear in another movie. From this appearance, we can gather that Seventh Victim takes place before Cat People in the world since Dr. Judd is murdered, unless this is just a completely different separate universe, alternate universe type thing where there's another Dr. Judd. They might not have even thought that much into it. Who knows, they might have been grasping at straws at this point. Like, hey, we've got to recapture that magic cat people. You know who was great in cat people? That slime ball, Dr. Lewis Judd. Let's bring him back. At first, and I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but at first, Dr. Judd is kind of this sinister figure again. I really don't like him at the beginning of the movie, and that may have something to do with we're not seeing the whole context with those scenes that were cut. And we know that he's hanging out with these cultist people, and we know that he's taking out books from the library on this specific cult, and the same as the leader of the cult is doing. But it turns out, if we would have had those deleted scenes, he's just trying to find out information on this cult. I believe Jacqueline is his patient, and he's just trying to gather what's going on with this cult himself. So he's doing his own investigation, as our characters are doing theirs as well. I really do like Dr. Judd in this movie. Maybe it's just the things that happened to him in this movie that turn him into kind of a slimeball and cat people. That's the only thing I can think of, but the guy gets himself in the middle of some really weird situations. Back to where the horror comes in. Dr. Judd goes to get Mary to take Jacqueline, and he gets there to where Jacqueline's supposed to be, and she's gone. And he makes this ominous statement about, now I have to face them alone, and that's very creepy, and it adds into the mystery and the tension that's built up to this point. Well... And here we are, finally halfway through the movie, where we actually get our first glimpse of Jacqueline. Jacqueline does not play a large role in this film until the ending, where she is pretty much the pivotal role of the film. And the catalyst for the film's message, really, in my eyes. But Jacqueline appears at the door, she tells Mary to be quiet, and then runs off. And when Mary comes back up after trying to chase down Jacqueline, we get this really tense scene where... She goes in and sees the reflection of someone sitting in a chair, just sees him from behind, the back of the chair, smoking a cigarette, and she can't see who it is, and she's very frightened here, and we don't know who that could possibly be. Turns out it was a pair of private investigators that were hired by Gregory, who is Jacqueline's husband. Ultimately harmless, but it's a really cool moment, and again, very noir-centric. Let's move on quickly here. The other main aspect of this film is the satanic cult, the Paladist. Again, we have more world-building from Val Luton and the team. They created this whole mythos about this cult and the rules of this cult. And again, we had a character going to the library and finding out what books they were reading, and it all traces back to this cult, which has the same symbol as the business logo. The woman who Jacqueline sold her business to changed the logo to this new symbol of this devil-worshipping cult. Well, like I said, there's this whole set of rules in history, and their rules tell them that they are to practice non-violence, but should also kill any traitors. This is where we tie into the film's title. In the history, there have been six traitors so far, and now Jacqueline is the seventh because she's went and blabbed to Dr. Judd about this secret society, this cult, because he is her psychiatrist. They plan on murdering Jacqueline, but there's this nice discussion, there's this big long discussion about how do we do it, because it preaches nonviolence. Well, we have to get her to kill herself, right? She's always obsessed with that. So they get Jacqueline, and they bring her in, we finally get our second look at Jacqueline with 20 minutes left in the film. They try to force her to drink a cup of poison, and she's first very against this, and she's refusing. 
she says, yes, I do want to kill myself, but I want to die on my own terms when I want to die. Very weird, but I get it from this existential dread perspective, but I don't think I could ever think that way. I don't know. She finally seems like she's going to relent until a woman that she knows who has very deep attachment of some kind. We have no idea what. We have nothing else detailing that. Knocks the cup out of her hand and Jacqueline doesn't go through with it. So they let her go and again we get something pretty ominous where they say, we're going to find you again. We're going to let you go, but it's not over. So we end up getting this late in the movie where Jacqueline's walking home and she hears a loud bang. And this is a very thrilling sequence, by the way. This is worth the price of admission if you are looking for a thriller more than just the mystery noir story. So she's walking home. She hears this loud bang. It's just a dog getting into a trash can. That's our loot and bust for the movie. But then she's being followed. So we get this very tense scene that follows this. The tension picks right back up. We get a scene where she's hiding in this alley and she reaches back on the wall and a man grabs her and he has a knife and he's going to kill her. But then this theater troupe comes out after a rehearsal or something and they break up this scene. So that's all very thrilling and it leads to the conclusion, which I'll get to in a second. But to backtrack, we do have a couple of other moments I wanted to talk about before we get to the ending. There's a cool shower scene where we just see a shadow outside of the shower and it's Mrs. Reedy who owns the Jacqueline's old business and is the leader of the cult, I believe, or at least is a higher up in that cult. And she's talking to Mary in the shower, and all you see is her shadow. And once again, we have this use, this interesting use of shadow from Balutin. She's telling Mary to go back to school and just forget about all the, you don't need to know about this. So I really like that scene. And then there's another scene late on, and this is after everything happens with Jacqueline. Jacqueline's on her own at the end of this movie, and it's completely separate from the rest of the characters, which is weird. But we get Dr. Judd, and we get, and I believe it's Mr. Hogue, who is the guy who's picked up the torch after you know our pi has fallen victim they're talking to these cultists and they're giving them this lecture and really preaching to them and they give and here they start quoting the lord's prayer to these devil worshipers and they kind of just silence them because these cultists are just going on and on and on about this stuff and then they just kind of silence them by making some statements and then reciting the lord's prayer and it's really cool i love that scene there are so many powerful scenes in this movie so how does this thing end? Well, we get a couple of glimpses, and I really like this. We get a couple of glimpses of this woman coughing, and it's just very subtle. It's in the same building that Jacqueline has her room rented, in the same building that Mary's living in, and we it's happened a couple times in the film where this coughing woman is shuffling down the hallway, and I think the restaurant owners might mention her. But at the end of this film, I think Jacqueline's thought, I've had enough, and she goes back to her room, she bumps into this coughing woman from earlier. We learn that she's dying. She has some kind of illness and she's afraid to die while Jacqueline over here is full of life and has always wanted to die and always wanted to end her life on her terms. Well, the sick woman has decided she's not going to let this sickness hold her down. She is going to go out and she tells Jacqueline, I'm going out. I'm not letting this sickness hold me down. I'm going out and enjoying myself instead of sitting in my room waiting to die. So they go their separate ways. We get Jacqueline going to her room and this lady going to her room. And at the end, Jacqueline's door is closed. We see the sick woman walks out. She's dressed up. And we see her going out to have a good time. And as she's wandering out, we hear the chair kicked out from under Jacqueline. And we know that Jacqueline has finally decided to end it. And I think it can be this message about not taking what you have for granted. Maybe. That's what I'm thinking. This You've got the age-old comparison of this sick woman who wants to live and a very healthy woman who has a lot to live for that wants to die. And maybe it's another message about not taking for granted what you have. Like, you have all this stuff, you should be happy with it. I don't know. Um, it's a very nihilistic ending, right? And considering the Hayes Code at the time, I don't know how this flew because that's a very unhappy ending. That's a very dark ending in an already dark time for the world. I mean, we're right smack dab in the middle of World War II. And it's a very dark message to have considering what the rules were in the industry at that time. I know another thing that Val E. Luton, so Val Luton's son, had mentioned was he thought that scene should go on for another four or five seconds to linger there and really give it the impact. 
but they couldn't because they couldn't go back and do reshoots. My mind, maybe that's true. I'm thinking maybe also with the code, they didn't want to push it any further than it already was. But I think that's a very notable scene in an early horror movie. And really quick, just to wrap up before I get into my recommendation, we have another love triangle type situation here. This is all seemingly that Val Luton knows how to write. We get Mary who is in love with Gregory and I think Gregory has also fallen for her. They didn't know each other before this started. Mary had just bumped in on her way to finding Jacqueline. Well, we've got Mr. Hogue who also is seems to be infatuated with Mary but knows that Gregory has feelings for her and she has feelings for Gregory so he doesn't get involved. It's a whole soap opera type thing. By the end, Gregory and Mary confess their love for one another, of course, and Jacqueline's conveniently no longer in the picture. We've seen this again and again, whether it's cat people, whether it's I Walked with a Zombie, or whether it's this film, where we end up seeing people who love each other are able to be together due to the death of another character. In this case, it's at the expense of Jacqueline. These two can be together. To get into my thoughts and recommendations, I've completely turned around on this film. I didn't really care for it after watching it the first time, but I just got so much enjoyment out of it on this second viewing, and I don't know if it's... I don't really know how to explain what's turned it around, but I just love the mystery and noir aspects. I love the inclusion of the cult here and all the background and history on the cult. I love the way the film ends. It's very dark and it's very powerful. And I think there are several powerful scenes throughout this movie that really elevate it to that top section of Val Luton films. If I was to give this any kind of recommendation, I would say it's a highly recommend. I would say if you've been following along and watching these Val Luton films or if you ever want to get backed into them one day, I think this is definitely one of the ones to check out near the beginning. It's one of the better ones for sure in my view. All right, I knew the time would eventually come for me to have to watch The Ghost Ship and talk about The Ghost Ship. Dark Mark, if you're listening, I'm sorry. I know you really love this film, but I just couldn't get into The Ghost Ship. I don't like the tone of this film, which I think is all over the place, and I think there's a good reason why it's all over the place. Let's not talk about that now. Let's get into the background of this film, and maybe we'll get a little clue as to why this film turned out the way it did. So flashback, after Cat People, RKO wanted to move quickly on a sequel to build on the success of Cat People, but Val Luton wanted to make a fantasy comedy story called The Amorous Ghost, and we've seen this time and time again with Val Luton. He's in horror, but he wants to get out of it and do other things and spread his wings, and I don't blame him. How many directors have we seen that have done that? Some to greater success than others, but I don't blame him for wanting to get out of this mold. Luton and RKO continued to fight and fight about this, about Luton doing this amorous ghost film, which was more of a comedy film and not horror, really. And in the meantime, while they were hashing that all out, Luton was able to make the seventh victim. The Cat People sequel got delayed because of actor availability, and they really wanted those actors to return for the film. So now our old buddy Charles Kerner, who is, again, the head of RKO at the time, and the guy who brought Val Luton into this role, he had a decision to make. He didn't want Luton to just be sitting around and waiting for Curse of the Cat People to start. Again, very strict deadlines. We have to pump out these movies. But he also didn't want him making a comedy film. So what do we do here? What's our compromise? Well, not really a compromise. He just suggested that Luton use the set of a previous RKO film that contained a ship in it and create a movie out of that. So the ghost ship was born. Val Luton was given this set, and once he saw the set, he allegedly got this idea in his head. We'll get into that very sad story for this film. But he got that idea in his head, and he started crafting the ghost ship. Some have suggested that Luton modeled the captain's character in this film, as kind of a shot across the bow or a shot up, punch up at the higher-ups at RKO. This captain has this view of my sailors' lives are mine to sacrifice, and they do what I tell them, and there's absolute rule. And he was trying to make a correlation between the executives and this captain character. That might have been. We'll never know. Val Luton didn't do many interviews, so we'll never know. He once again chose Mark Robeson to direct this, and the two agreed once more to emphasize 
implied horror rather than straightforward type of scares. Luton actually, and I really liked this fact that Luton brought this former pastor on set and he served as the consultant on all the psychic phenomena in the film, which you can argue the use of this and what they got out of it, but I think that's really cool that you've got this consultant on set and it goes again back into we've got to make every detail perfect and we can't just do this thing half-heartedly. We've got to put our all into it and get every fact about the subject matter. So the film released on Christmas Eve 1943 and it initially was doing well at the box office and like we talked about before maybe things are looking up for Luton. Maybe he's gonna be able to make his movies that he wants to as Amorous Ghost and Maybe he will, but in true typical Val Luton fashion, tragedy struck his works and put another obstacle in his way. In February, the film was pulled from all theaters after Luton was sued for plagiarism. Apparently, a pair of playwrights had claimed that the script was based on a play that they gave Luton as an idea for a film, and that he just stole the idea and made a film without their credit, without their consent, without them getting paid for anything. Luton fought this in court, and ultimately lost. From a source I saw, this was said to really throw him into a depression, and it took quite a toll on him losing this plagiarism battle. And the bigger loss is the studio lost all rights to residual income on this film. It was not going to go back in theaters. They lost the right to sell this film for TV, so it wasn't going to appear on TV. And it wouldn't see the light of day for another 50 years until it entered public domain. 1993, this film finally got a bit of a revival. That is insane. We've got this film that Luton's put together, and it just got put back on the shelf because of alleged plagiarism. And it was lost for decades and decades. Luckily, it did get out there because, as I said, I'm not a huge fan of this film. I want everything to be available for everyone at all times. How else are we going to get the word out there about films? Access is the name of the game, and I'm so glad that this one was able to have a bit of a revival. Before we get too far, let's go ahead and start off with a synopsis. Captain Stone's newly recruited officer, Tom Merriam, idolizes his senior who treats him like a friend. But when a couple of his crew members die mysteriously, Tom starts doubting Stone's authority. I don't have a ton to say on this film. I do want to point out a couple of key aspects as we go through. It definitely has a more upbeat and comedic tone at points. I'm not a huge fan of where the first act goes. I didn't really find much to like about the first act. It takes until the third act until I really got interested and it really picked up. I liked some things along the way. I'm not saying I didn't like anything about this. But it takes a little while for me to get into it. Let's go ahead and talk about probably... The most important thing in this film, and that is the captain character and his belief system and his attitude. We get this right off the bat where he stops Tom Merriam, who is his new officer, from killing a moth and tells him he has no right to end that moth's life. Very weird introduction here. But oh, we're thinking maybe this is this benevolent character who just doesn't want to take unnecessary lives. Well, we learn pretty quickly that that's not true. He kind of does all this talking around in circles and makes Tom think that he's this great leader. And he keeps saying this stuff about the captain has the authority over his men. He's willing to give his life for his men, so he has the right to take risk with his men's lives. Yeah, it's pretty on the nose, okay? Whoever said that thing about the RKO executive shot, I could see that because he doesn't pull any punches with this captain character. You get a little bit of humanity later on. I don't think Val's going to sabotage his own film at the expense of these RKO executives. But time and time again, this captain is just pointed out to be this iron fist ruling kind of hypocrite, really. We'll get this intense scene later on where Tom has to step in and perform a medical procedure on this crewman because they can't get to a doctor in time. The captain's supposed to do it, but he just can't do it. He can't remove the appendix from the sailor. And we learn later that the captain says he's not afraid of doing it, but he was afraid of failing and didn't want to do it himself. He wanted to leave it up to someone else. And the captain veers into negligence, really, at points. We get a scene where there's a hook hanging dangerously, and Tom has said stuff repeatedly to the captain, and it's foreshadowed that this could possibly hurt someone, and he's told the captain, 
and the captain just sits him down and has this talk with him about authority. And we get this running joke in the film of this word authority and authority, and that's the captain's favorite word, apparently. We get another malfunction later on where a man dies being crushed by a chain because the door is locked to the room where the chain's dropping down and there's something going wrong. When we discover this, the captain says he has no problem with him dying because he was insubordinate. This is where things are changing for Tom, and he accuses him of locking the door and causing him to die. He thinks the captain is, at the very least, incompetent and negligent. So we get a scene when they go back into dock, and Tom tries to report the captain for all this stuff and get him removed from the ship. But all the men take the captain's side, even though they're, it's nothing against Tom, they just... The captain's done so much for them, so he feels embarrassed and abandoned. He doesn't want to go back to the ship, and the captain doesn't want him back on the ship. Well, he gets knocked out and ends up back on the ship. And he's very disoriented when he wakes up, because he had chosen to stay ashore. We get the captain using this phrase, and he's used it before, and he's talking to Tom, and he says, you know, some captains would hold this against you. I think it's a very poignant foreshadow of what was going to come. There's something wrong here. So we get this where the captain has turned everyone on Tom and he even pulls a gun on him and, hey, get someone to believe you. Get someone to (laughs) come and stop me or take me out of my position because he knows that he won't. But we get to a point where it's very much implied that someone who's found out the truth and is going to help Tom, that the captain kills them and the captain starts hearing these voices in his head. So we start to think there's something not right with the captain. He's ultimately killed in the ending of this film. I think by that point we realize, again, something's just not right with this captain. But even during that final fight, where these three men are fighting and the two men are trying to hold off the captain, we get this singing in the background during this fight, and it's so jarring, and I just just can't with that. We're in this tense moment, and we get this song going on in the background, and I, I don't like it whatsoever. Is the captain insane, or is this a haunting? Is the ship haunted? But we really only get a few moments of these haunting scenes, and I wonder if something was cut out of this, like with previous films. I don't know. But really all we get is when Tom first boards a ship, we find out that the last officer that lived in his room died in there. So there's that, that little piece. Um, Later on in the film, Tom's in his room, and seemingly without explanation, we see things fall off the shelves. And I just don't feel like this is present long enough. I think you can see through the mystery pretty easily where they're going with this film. I think it's so understated and so... It's an afterthought. It's just an afterthought. This is much more of like this psychological thriller than it is anything of a kind of haunting movie or even leading you to believe it's a haunting movie. Maybe I'm missing something, but that's how it came off to me. Which leads me to this film even though it's the same runtime as the others, it just feels like it goes by way too fast. I felt like nothing happened. I looked up and I was at 40 minutes and I was like, really? We've got like 30 more minutes to go with this? That's it? I feel like nothing's happened in the first 40 minutes of this film. But I don't want to be completely negative on this. One thing I really like is there's this subplot, and we can end it on a couple positive notes here. There's a subplot where Tom meets Ellen when he's ashore the first time, And she's somehow romantically involved with the captain. These are the scenes where we get some humanity out of this captain. Well, Ellen's telling Tom, don't be like him. You know, be a much more warmer person. Be a much more caring person. She said, I'll have my sister meet you the next time you dock. Just meet her and see what happens. So at the end, when the captain's killed and they get back into dock, we see Tom coming out, but we only see shadows. We see Tom's shadow and we see Ellen's sister's shadow. And they're having this conversation, but we just see their shadows. And I really love this. Val Luton does so many interesting things with shadows, as we talked about the shower scene from the last movie. And it's just something I really love. Cannot state enough how much of a master he is, even in films that I don't necessarily like. He's still bringing his A-game every time. One other thing to note before we get into the conclusion. We do have the Trinidad-born Sir Lancelot, and that is his stage name making an appearance here, and he's also in Curse of the Cat People. I Walked with a Zombie as well, and he's this Calypso singer, and his songs are used. We have in I Walked with a Zombie, he's got that scene where he's singing. He actually plays a much larger role as Edward in the Curse of the Cat People coming up. But they definitely use his singing talents here, and I've got nothing against his singing talents. I just don't think, I just don't think they fit where they were put in this movie. I loved 
his song in I Walked With a Zombie, I think it was perfect, and his performance was perfect. But I just really love the characters he portrays, no matter what. I love him in The Ghost Ship, I love him in I Walked With a Zombie for his short scene, and I really love him in The Curse of the Cat People. That being said, this film is kind of a mess. It feels like nothing's really paid off. I just don't like the tone, and there's so little horror here. You can tell with this trajectory of where we're going, where we're going, and where we've been, that Luton is desperately trying to get out of horror, and we'll see that even more here in a minute. You can probably tell how I feel in this one. I'm hoping, like in the other two films in this episode, that I turn around on this upon a second viewing. This is my first time watching this. There are only a couple Val Luton's films I haven't seen before. I think it's just this and Bedlam are the only horror-related of his that I haven't seen before. So this is the first time watched. This isn't, I haven't had as much time with this one, and I haven't been able to revisit it. For most horror fans, I would say maybe this is worth a one-time watch. This is most likely, I don't know how Bedlam's going to end out, but most likely the one that I'm going to give my lowest recommendation on. On this series, I just it just didn't click with me. And if it sounds interesting to you, certainly go and check it out. It's just not something that was going to hit with me. Okay, let's get into our last film of the evening, The Curse of the Cat People. On this one, similarly to The Seventh Victim, I was a little lukewarm on it after watching it originally, but I've turned around on this too. I still I still liked it a little more than I did The Seventh Victim the first time around, but I really turned around on both of these films. This is obviously a sequel to 1942's Cat People, trying to cash in a couple years later on the success of that film. Starting out, Gunther von Fritsch was set to make his feature film debut. However, he fell behind schedule and only got about halfway through shooting the screenplay in the whole time he was given to shoot. So RKO's not very happy. They're going to have to remove him. They stepped in and assigned former editor Robert Wise to take over, and this was his directorial debut as well. Now, if that name sounds familiar and you heard the little pep in my voice there, it's because Robert Wise is a legendary director, directing The Haunting and The Day the Earth Stood Still, probably my second favorite Val Luton film in The Body Snatcher, more onto that in next episode. And he also directed things like West Side Story and The Sound of Music, a very high-profile director, very prolific, very good director, and he got his start by chance. He was an editor, Gunther von Fritsch wasn't cutting it, here Robert, you take over. So that's awesome. I love hearing stories like that and how people break in. And he went on to such success that it's just amazing. So due to all that, the film ended up being nine days behind schedule and went way over budget. They originally had a budget of 147000 for this film. And by the time it was done, the budget got bumped up to 212000 which I believe is the highest for any Val Luton film up to this point. They were probably willing to do it, given that it was a sequel to one of their most popular films of all time. Shared some of the cast and characters with Cat People. Here we have Oliver and Alice returning, and we do have Arena returning as well, in a little bit of a twist. But it's clear that this is a completely separate film, and not just in narrative, but in tone as well. As I touched on before, RKO Studio Executives wanted to cash in on the success of Cat People, and insisted keeping the title The Curse of the Cat People, which... It's a decent enough title. Luton wanted this film to be called Amy and Her Friend, which makes a ton more sense to have that as the title. But in my opinion, it's a very bad title. And you're not going to get any fans of Cat People to go see a film called Amy and Her Friend. Curse the Cat People? That title makes no sense to me. I think they were just trying to come up with some kind of clever sequel name. They couldn't just say Cat People 2 back then. You know, we had Frankenstein, and we had The Bride of Frankenstein. We can't just have, you know, Cat People, the sequel. So I get where they're coming from at the studio, and I do not like the name Amy and her friend. I don't think that's good. It might have played better back in 1940, but I don't think we'd be talking about it today. Luton, in my opinion, unless this was already in the script, he seemed pretty salty about this. And he even uses when Arena and Amy are having a conversation later, we hear the phrase, Amy and her friend. And given the way that RKO, what I know about RKO with them giving these titles up front and create your idea around it, I'm guessing Luton put this in to spite RKO. 
So once again, we've got that constant clash, that butting of heads between Luton and RKO. Yet he is one of their biggest moneymakers. You gotta give the guy some leeway, in my opinion. Luton used a lot of inspiration from his own life in this film and his experiences and his likes and dislikes. I'll give you an example of that here, is there's this really cool scene where where no one showed up for Amy's birthday party, and her dad goes over to Edward, who we've talked about before, Sir Lancelot. Hey, did you mail these invitations? Uh, no, I gave them to Amy, she insisted. Well, Amy put them out in the hollow of a tree that's in their backyard because her dad had told her it was a magic mailbox when she was younger. Apparently, Val had done the same thing as a child. Val also grew up in, or grew up close to Terrytown, and that's where this film is set. And Terrytown has a lot of tying in with Sleepy Hollow, and Val Luton loved The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irvin, and he included that in this film. So a lot of pulling from Val Luton's life for this, there's not a lot of research to be done on this, not really, because there's not that much of a background or story. This is something that would be considered, I want to say slice of life, but I know that's not the type of thing here, but really that's what it is. There's not really a driving narrative plot of things going on, and there's not really this background. You're just getting a look into the life of these people, and yeah, there's some things that happen here or there, and yes, this could be considered very light horror but it's mostly drama with a little bit of thriller. A very big departure from what we've seen from Val Luton in the past, in my eyes at least. You can imagine how that went over with the RKO executives knowing what we know to this point. They were not happy with this final film and demanded scenes be added into the final cut. This caused some other scenes to be cut out, and again here we've lost, from what we understand, critical plot details. There are plot holes. Why are there plot holes in these Val Luton films? It's not because Val Luton doesn't pour his heart and soul into every single thing he does and make sure all the details are perfect. It's because he's constantly having things cut out of his films, and that makes these narratives seem a little jarring. They're in such a rush to get these movies shot. All of this meddling and all of these cuts and all of these changes and all the whole titling structure where he's given a title to come up with a film and he's given such strict deadlines, it's all been working against Luton at this point. The Curse of the Cat People was released in February of 1944, so right when the ghost ship was taken out of theaters. And a lot of times it was included in a double bill with the original Cat People, which makes sense, even though there's not a lot relating the two films. It's more of, I see Curse of the Cat People more as like an epilogue to Cat People than anything else. I couldn't find any box office data. I'm not sure how this did. I'm sure it did pretty well if it was on a double bill with the original Cat People, but not sure entirely. Let's go ahead and get into that synopsis. Amy, the young friendless daughter of Oliver and Alice Reed, befriends her father's late first wife and an aging reclusive actress. Uh, that about sums it up. Yeah, that's pretty good. I think first and foremost what I want to mention is Amy does an amazing job in this film. I think she's a great child actor. We've gotten so many bad child actors over the years, and I think Amy just does spectacular. There are two kind of separate timelines that we've got, or storylines that we've got going on. I'm going to break them up into two and talk about each of them individually. The first piece would be, you know, we have Oliver and Alice are married and returning from Cat People, and it's about their relationship with their daughter Amy and Amy's supposed imaginary friend, and just a look into their lives as it goes along. This film does cover, seems to cover a lot of time, at least a lot of ground, so... It's very expansive. Amy's always daydreaming and imagining things, and Oliver gets very upset with her, thinks she's like Arena, and I think that scares him. He's still, we still have this theme of him holding on to Arena, and he still hasn't gotten over this, and maybe can be seen as, how do you deal with grief and getting over grief? She has this birthday party, and she blows out the candle and makes a wish, and her wish is to... Be a good girl just like her dad wants. You can see the tension that's there between Oliver and Amy. And this also causes tension between Oliver and Alice, and she thinks that he's too hard on her. Again, he hasn't completely gotten over Arena and the tragedy that happened around her. We still have a favorite painting of hers hanging in the living room. He insists on keeping it up. And we get this line from Alice where she thinks there's a curse on this family. I think that's a line thrown in there to relate back to the title. 
but Oliver still has pictures of her and ends up backfiring because Amy sees one of these pictures of Arena, and she's had this imaginary friend or ghost. We can't really figure out what it is at this point. We haven't seen the physical manifestation of this friend, but after she sees the picture of Arena, we're now introduced to Arena, and Arena is the friend. So at that point, we're not quite sure leads us to believe that maybe this is imaginary, but maybe it really is a ghost. Maybe she recognized Arena, and maybe that's the reason, but that's what we're led down this road. It's either imaginary friend, or it's a ghost. Still haunting the family, I guess. Oliver ends up burning the pictures of Arena, but he still keeps one of the pictures and puts it away. Again, he's not able to let go of these memories of Arena. Amy finally reveals to her parents that Arena is her new friend, and Ollie takes her out and makes her show him, and he can't see her. So this makes us think that it probably is just an imaginary friend. It's someone who Amy has created because she's lonely as a child and doesn't have a lot of friends or gets along with the other kids. This will drive into the other half of the theme here, which I want to discuss later, but Oliver kind of blows up on her and punishes her, and... It drives Amy to go and do something kind of rash. But we do end up getting this heartwarming reconciliation between the two at the end of the film and seeing just how much they've grown and how much the relationship has grown over the events of this movie. So the other piece is we've got this, you know, what I talked about, this look into the family, this dealing with Amy and her imaginary friend, this dealing with what the family's going through after this whole arena thing, and they still haven't quite got over it. The other piece, and maybe more of a side note here, it's not given as much of a billing as the drama with Alice and Oliver and Amy, of course, because that's who people probably want to see from the original film, is this side plot where Amy's walking by this house, and she hears a voice, and a woman throws her down a ring, And when she goes, she's told to return the ring, and she goes to return it, she finds out that it's Mrs. Julia Farron, who is a retired actress and an aging actress. This is where we get a majority of our horror, is from this side plot. She lives with her daughter, and it's clear there's tension between the two. She always is saying that her daughter, who's Barbara, is spying on them, but she doesn't recognize her as Barbara. She's saying that her daughter died when she was six, and you're not my daughter, you're not my daughter, you're just the woman who takes care of me. I don't think we fully get fleshed out what goes on between Barbara and her mother, and I wish we would have gotten a little more answers on that front. Which would have been more of a reveal, but we really don't get one. She tells Amy this legend of the Headless Horseman, the legend of Sleepy Hollow, and she's kind of made out to be a little bit of a sinister figure at this point between the way she's, how she's telling the story and how she reacts with her daughter and the way that Alice is talking about her and not letting Amy go over there alone. You just get the feeling, though, that something wasn't completely fleshed out, that maybe this was a break in between the two directors, maybe Robert Wise, and I see hints of Robert Wise as the haunting in this section of the movie. I don't know. I don't know. We don't know what was contributed by which director, but it just does seem like something different. The daughter's also made out to be very intimidating and sinister. You get this feeling that Amy's a little bit creeped out by her, where she's not as creeped out by Julia. Amy has a nightmare about this headless horseman in the story that she gets, and it's awesome that we see this shadow horse like go across her room, and we hear the, the galloping and everything else, and so we just get the shadow coming across while she's sleeping. And then we get, she's calling for her friend, and we get the shadow of her friend creeping in the room, which we later see to be Arena. Just another great scene use of shadows from Balloon. Barbara, we see, clearly resents Amy, since Julia is paying all of this attention to her, and she's not getting any attention to herself. Her mother won't even recognize or won't even acknowledge her and calls her an imposter. Now, at some point in the movie, Arena goes away, and I think it's to do with She's realizing that this isn't healthy for her, but this is that scene where Oliver kind of disciplines her, and she, Arena comes to tell Amy that she's leaving her, and she's not going to see her anymore, and it's going to be better for both of them. So she runs out of the house and tries to find Arena, and it is snowing heavily, and she's running through the woods, 
and it's just not safe for a six-year-old girl to be out there like that. This is pretty tense, and we do get some beautiful shots as she's wandering through the woods here and down through the snow and everything else. We get a scene, and this is where the Luton bus comes into play for this movie, where Amy's on this bridge, and she's thinking back to The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, and she hears what sounds like a horse galloping up, and she decides to go and hide because she's scared. What comes along is a car driving over the bridge, and it's got a bad wheel that's making a sound that sounds like a galloping horse. So she's scared for nothing. While she's out here in the snow, Julia, back at the Farron residence, Julia keeps insisting that Barbara died, and Barbara's pleading with her mother to acknowledge her, and you can just feel so much pain from Barbara in this film. You can just feel how how distraught she is that her mother won't even recognize her, acknowledge her as her daughter. Her mother refuses, still refuses, and Barbara declares the next time she sees Amy, she's going to kill her. She's going to murder her. Well, Amy's out in the snow, and we've got the police now involved, and they're chasing with the dogs and trying to find Amy, and Amy gets kind of scared of the dogs. She doesn't know why they're out there. or She doesn't know that they're looking for her and trying to find her. So she runs off and heads toward the Farron house. Well, in the Farron house, we get a couple of sequences, and this is what I was talking about with that Robert Wise haunting vibe, is we've gotten before a couple of things that make it seem kind of like a haunted house and we get a little a couple of unexplained things and we'll get that again here as we go to this conclusion is the door blows open and the lights start to flicker and is that just because of the storm is there a ghost there's a little bit of an opening for that there we finally get some tension here into this film with the parents rushing to find her and they don't know where amy is and Mrs. Farron is trying to hide Amy because she knows that Barbara said she was going to kill her next time she sees her. So they're going up the stairs and she's going to hide her in her room. And Mrs. Farron just collapses and seemingly dies. Well, unfortunately, Barbara hears all the commotion and comes out and sees this. Barbara looks like she could murder Amy and she has this murderous intent about her. And she sees her mother's died there and... She sees it as, this girl has caused my mom to die. And we get this where Barbara's telling her to come here. Come here. And Amy is so frightened. But she sees Barbara. And she sees Arena kind of superimposed over Barbara. And it looks like Arena to her. And she thinks it's Arena. Now, we don't know if this is something that's happening like a ghost. If this is really real at this point. If it's just her mind projecting Arena on Barbara. We don't know. But either way... Amy goes back down the stairs, and she goes and hugs Barbara, and I think this catches her off guard. At first, her fingers are kind of contorted, and it looks like she just might strangle this child, and then she just accepts the hug and kind of wanders off as the police enter. But that's really the extent of the horror. That's where we're getting the horror here. We've got this, maybe it's a haunted house, maybe that Barbara's going to murder Amy, and there might be this dark past between Julia and her daughter Barbara. It just feels like something that wasn't fully fleshed out. And this could have been two completely different movies. They could have made... I don't know what the studio was thinking. They could have cashed in three times. We could have had the story of the imaginary friend in Curse the Cat People. And we could have had another film where it's just set more on the Farrens and what's going on in that house. And maybe the house is haunted. We get more of the backstory between the mother and daughter. I really would have liked to see that. But they could have really cashed in, you know? One of my favorite scenes in the movie is a Christmas scene and they're going through the presents and Amy is, she's, Amy has wrapped up these gifts and she's going through who they are and you know, there's one with no one's name on it and just as they're trying to grill her to see who it's for, some carolers come to the door and they let him in and they give him something to drink and they're singing songs and it's a really nice scene and then Amy goes out into the garden and gives Arena her present. Arena is singing outside to sing with the carolers and it's really really nice scene and really heartwarming. There's a lot of warmth in this film throughout. That's pretty much all I wanted to say on the Curse of the Cat people. I would say this might be an avoid if you're a pure horror fan and are looking for horror here. If you're looking for something different, if you're looking for drama with a little bit of thriller, I really love this and would give it a high recommend. If you're strictly looking for horror, you might want to skip it. But Curse of the Cat People is, I wouldn't say it's a worthy sequel, but it's a really good film. It's just a completely different film. I love it. I think the performances here are excellent. I think the plot could have used a little more fleshing out, but we know why it wasn't. 
So we've got Curse the Cat People. What is Val Luton doing after Curse the Cat People? Because this one released in early 1944, and we wouldn't get another film from him until 1945. And as you know, why would we let Val Luton sit around? He's got to pump out at least three movies a year. Val did a little bit of a foray into other genres. He finally got his approval to do films outside of the horror genre. And we know we've seen that building forever, and he just really wanted to break out of producing horror films. And the first idea that got some ground was he wanted to make a period piece based on the short stories of Guy de Maupassant, who is a French author, apparently, and excuse the pronunciation there, and wanted to make this film that was set in the 19th century but would kind of parallel Paris's current situation, you know, as it related to the Nazi occupation as well. This was Robert Wise's first directorial credit by himself. He shared credit on Curse the Cat People since he came in a little bit later. Val Luton was so impressed with him that he brought him back for his next film. It's said that Luton and Wise went in and studied hundreds of period paintings from artists and to try to get the look they wanted for the film. And Wise was on record as saying, you know, because these were so low budget, they had to stretch their imagination to get results. And they didn't have a lot to work with. They did what they could with what they had and coming up with creative solutions. I don't know if I've actually mentioned what the film was called, but it was Mademoiselle Fifi. And it was going to star Simone Simone again. So working with the same crew, it had a little bit of a bigger budget. It was at 200000 so they got a little bit more money to do it. But that's still pretty shoestring budget for a period piece where you have to come up with costumes for everyone. And you have to make everything look like it is in that period. So really, for a period piece at the time, this was lower than his horror movie budgets, if you put it on par there. The film was finally released in July of 1944, so this was the first film shown in France after the Allied invasion of Normandy. And unfortunately for Luton, this was not very well received. It was not received well in previews. The box office did not do good. By far, it had the worst gross of any of his films. So that's not a good look with someone who's trying to desperately get out of horror if your first foray into something that's not horror is a bomb. After the failure of Mademoiselle Fifi, and I believe this film was actually in production before Mademoiselle Fifi, was Youth Runs Wild. And this is a movie about essentially inattentive parents and juvenile delinquency. It's not a horror movie at all. It's another one of that experimental period where he's trying to get out of horror. Unfortunately, again, both were failures. Luton got Mark Robeson in again to direct this film. Well, it had its premiere in September 1st of 1944, but didn't go into wide release until January of 1945. This is the only film that Luton asked to have his name removed from the credit of producer. It's been said that the film was so different between the original cut and what was later released that Luton didn't want anything to do with it, and it's really a shame it seemed like it was a troubled production with so many changes going through. It started shooting in December of 1943 and wasn't released until over a year later. So not something that Luton would really want to remember. So there we go. He's drifted out into other genres. He's tried to spread his wings, but it just doesn't work for poor Val Luton. Some changes would be coming his way that would create even more obstacles and put him back into stricter horror. In 1944, Charles Kerner, who had been one of Luton's greatest supporters, you know, he brought him into RKO and gave him that chance. Well, he was diagnosed with leukemia. It's hard to pin down when exactly he left RKO, but the last film that was mentioned under being released under his tenure was released in early 1945. So at some point in there, and Luton would go on to do a couple movies in 1945 and then one in 46 with the next three we'll talk about. I think at this point, Kerner was gone from RKO when he's getting to these next set of films. Kerner passed away on February 2nd, 1946, and this was really devastating to Luton. Even though they butted heads, it still seemed like Kerner was the one who gave him the chance and gave him the support and leeway. Under the new regime, Luton would lose what little freedom he really had. From now on, he would need to have his scripts approved before he went into filming. And this was really just the beginning. In the next episode, we'll talk about 
another obstacle that would soon rear its head that really caused Luton to lose it. Your homework for next time will be to check out The Isle of the Dead, The Body Snatcher, and Bedlam from 1945 and 1946, respectively. We're going to cover those three films as well as the end of Val Luton's life as we are coming to a close on the coverage of Val Luton. It's been a fun ride to get through this. I am anxious to get on to the next topic. I'll reveal a little more about that in my next episode. Till then, you can follow the podcast over on Twitter at Screaming Ages, or you can send me an email to the email address screamingthroughtheages at yahoo.com. Also have a website, screamingthroughtheages.com. With that being said, we're going to move into our last episode of this first chapter on the next episode. So keep your eyes trained to your podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson. <laughs>